0: Hello, and welcome back to the Yeshua Judaism series of podcast. We're discussing Oral Torah, proof of its legitimacy and necessity. And this will be part 10 in our discussion. And we left off part 9, where we were about to begin premise number 4. Premise number 4 is entitled, Further Evidence of Oral Torah Found in Scripture. Now, you may be thinking, well, you've been given, that's all these premises have been, the last two or three premises. is just evidence of oral Torah found in Scripture, blah, blah, blah. Yes, that's correct. Because I'm trying to hammer the fact home. I'm trying to, to to just repetitively show that there is clear evidence in the written Bible that oral Torah is legitimate and necessary. So I'm showing some of that evidence. Now, I'm not showing all of it but I'm showing some of it. So this will be premise for further evidence of oral Torah found in scripture. So we find further direct support for oral Torah, or the unwritten teachings of Torah, and even historic proof of its use in the book of Nehemiah. I will quote from three separate Bible versions, the New English translation, the King James Version, and the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Within these passages, you will see the use of oral Torah, of the oral Torah method of Midrash, which we spoke of earlier. Now, the reason I chose three different versions is just because people like different versions, but they all basically say the same thing. And I'll be reading from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 7 through 12. And... I'll go ahead and ask now for forgiveness. <laughs> Please forgive me for the terrible pronunciation of the names, which I will be reading, particularly in verse 7. So uh, just pardon me for that, and I'll continue. I'll read now. So Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 7 through 12, first from the NET Bible. Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yaman, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Ma'asa, excuse me, Maaseiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peleiah, all of whom were Levites, were teaching the people the law, that is the Torah, the Hebrew word for that would be Torah. So they were teaching people the Torah as the people remained standing. They read from the book of God's law, or God's Torah, explaining it and imparting insight. Thus, the people gained understanding from what was read. Now, notice that verse 8. They read from the book of God's law. They were reading from the Torah scroll, explaining it and imparting insight. Thus, the people gained understanding from what was read. Continuing with verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priestly scribe, and the Levites, who were imparting understanding to the people, said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping when they heard the words of of the Torah. He said to them, Go and eat delicacies and drink sweet drinks and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Then the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be quiet. For this day is holy. Do not grieve. So all the people departed to eat and drink and to share their food with others and to enjoy tremendous joy. For they had gained insight in the matters that had been made known to them. Notice, they had gained insight in the matters that had been made known to them. Now reading from the King James Version. Also, Yeshua and Bani and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akub and Shebathiah. Hodiyah, Maaseiah Kelita, Azariah, Josebad, Hanan, Peleiah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the Torah, and the people stood in their place. They read out of the book of the Torah of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. And Nehemiah, which is the Tersheth, excuse me, which is the tershatha and as Ezra the priest described, and the Levites that taught the people said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the Torah. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy. Neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat, and to drink, and to send portions, and to make great mirth, because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. And finally from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And again, forgive me for my terrible pronunciation of those <laughs> hard-to-pronounce names. Yeshua, Bani, Sherviah, Yaman, Akub, Shabbatiah, Shab- Hodiah, Maaseiah, Kelita, Azariah, Yozabad, Hanan, and Pel- Peli'iah, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> that's terrible, I'm butchering those names, who were Levites. Explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. Notice, explained the Torah to the people as they stood in their places. So they read in the book in the Torah of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Notice that. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing to prepare, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your stronghold. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Do not grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions, and have a great celebration because they had understood the words that were explained to them. Okay. And that completes the reading and the butchering of those names that I did (laughs) as I read. So, recall that these people had just returned from captivity, the captivity of Babylon, during which some had forgotten the use of the previous Hebrew language. Therefore, there was translation that was needed. But beyond that... Beyond that, from these verses, we see a clear, a very clear and direct reference to the presence, use, and need for explanation and clarification of Bible passages. I mean, the passages say that's exactly what happened. As it was being read, it was being explained and clarified. It is actually an obvious need. And any Christian, or anyone else, knows this. So, why then does Christianity declare invalid the Oral Torah, since its use is a common sense necessity? Let me say that again. Let me ask that question again. Why does Christianity basically advance the concept and declare invalid. Basically, Christianity tells all Christians, and therefore all Christians generally believe, they declare invalid the oral Torah, verbal teachings, yet its use, oral Torah's use, is a common sense necessity. People, this is common sense. As I've said before, it's impossible to practice any faith system without verbal teachings without Oral Torah. It's impossible. Again, as I say elsewhere, if Christians reject the Oral Torah of the Judaic sages, then to be consistent, they must reject the New Testament, since the New Testament is largely composed of that very thing. In fact, just about every teaching in the New Testament is taken from fundamental Judaic teachings, specifically, fundamental Oral Torah. And as a separate article proves, even the teachings of the atonement of Messiah, the atonement through Messiah has Judaic origins and is itself oral Torah. And I have material on the Torah Messiah website in which that is discussed and podcast. Although, now that I think about it, I'm not sure I've recorded that yet, but if it's not present currently, it will soon be in podcast form, audio form. And I will prove that. Even the concept of the atonement through Messiah is based in prior, pre-existing oral Torah that was known at the time of Messiah. There are, of course, elements of teaching within the New Testament that do differ from the Torah of Judaism, but such things are actually relatively rare if the New Testament is correctly interpreted from its proper Torah-centric context. The issue is not really that Christians reject oral Torah. Instead, they simply reject the oral Torah that they choose not to follow. The oral Torah that differs from their Torah ignorant and minimalist version of understanding of the Bible. They have a minimalist, very shallow understanding of Scripture. Those who cling to their own personal form of oral teachings, which differ from Judaism's, will likely never see the New Testament as what it is. The New Testament is a thoroughly Judaic composition of writings, which differ really only slightly with the traditions of Jewish sages. Oral Torah is a legitimate concept, and anyone, anyone who thinks otherwise, is either intellectually deficient, a hypocrite, or both. Despite their deceitful claims to the contrary, Christians and others do not actually reject Oral Torah. They simply reject those verbal teachings, Oral Torah, which conflict with their own. Let me state that again, because this is a fundamental, basically, takeaway from all of these from this entire discussion, from all the parts we've, you've heard. This is a fundamental takeaway. Christians and Christianity does not actually reject Oral Torah. They simply reject the Oral Torah, which conflicts with their own. They do have their own Oral Torah, their own verbal teachings. So for Christians to say, or for Christian leaders to say, that oral Torah is illegitimate and bogus, then they have to say the same thing about their own oral Torah because that's what they use. Christianity has its own set of verbal teachings, its own oral Torah. So they don't reject oral Torah. They simply reject the oral Torah that differs from their own. And they need to stop lying and being deceitful and admit it. They do not reject oral Torah. They simply reject what they don't agree with. The Torah definition I presented in previous parts represents a minimum accounting of the components of the Torah of God. There are actually subsets of those elements, or additional ones, but those listed are all that is really necessary to really get an understanding of the definition of Torah. It should be clearly understood that all of them are Torah, and if and that if only one of them is missing, if only one of those elements of oral Torah, or, or excuse me, of Torah, which includes oral Torah, if only one of them are missing, then the Torah is not complete. Do I accept all that is considered oral Torah within Judaism? No, I absolutely do not. However, that is not the issue being discussed at the moment. Suffice it to say, I do consider much of it to be legitimate, and a correct transfer of God's instructions to mankind, and of extreme importance if one wishes to grasp the teachings of the Most High. Now I'll get into a brief analogy to clarify the importance of oral Torah. This will be basically a little bit of an analogy. Basically, the written Torah, which I will call the Tanakh, the Old Testament, let's say for now the written Torah is the entire Old Testament, the Tanakh, which Christianity irreverently calls the Old Testament. It's not old. God's teachings are not old. And I think it would be uh, wise Christians to stop calling the teachings of the Creator God old. Quit being disrespectful to the Creator God, please. Please call it the Tanakh. That's what it is. Do not call it the Old Testament. So the Tanakh is considered, that is the written Torah, somewhat of a covering or clothing for the deeper aspects of Torah. The terms covering and clothing are mystical terms which refer to something that serves and protects that which it covers. It is, in a sense, a protective shell housing the heart of whatever is within it, whatever is clothed. An excellent analogy is an egg. The eggshell, that is the covering for the egg, is there to primarily serve and protect the embryonic material within the shell. Likewise, the basic commandments and teachings of the Tanakh function as the most basic elements and a covering or shell for a much deeper and meaningful set of teachings that are actually present the final, or excuse me, that actually present the final intent and the deeper intent of those teachings that represent the shell. Those deeper aspects are what is known as the Oral Torah, which is composed of what I described in previous uh, parts, previous podcasts within this series. It is from those teachings that the true intent of the Eternal One's instructions is understood. The egg is again a good analogy with regard to how one learns the truth. During a bird's formation within the egg, It feeds upon the material within the shell until such time as it matures enough to emerge from the shell. It is not birthed, that is a bird, is not birthed from the outside in, but from the inside out. Birth in the natural world always starts from inside something, inside some form of a protective shroud, and the first food or or nutrition of any creature comes from within that covering of protection, be it a bird's egg or a human mother's womb. Such is somewhat of a physical parallel for spiritual birth. The crucial oral Torah inner aspects, that is the inner egg material, of the written Torah, which represents the egg shell, are absolutely crucial nutrition for a person to reach a level of spiritual maturity from which they can break forth healthy enough to proceed furthering their maturity, just like the bird. Sadly, since Christianity is extremely anti-Torah, a matter of fact, that's the most fundamental doctrine of Christianity, is its opposition to Torah, since it is so anti-Torah, and even more so severely anti-oral Torah, Christians are never able to receive the most fundamental embryonic truths of God's ways. They, therefore, never, never mature spiritually because they utterly refuse to to enter the egg to partake of the elements necessary for their true spiritual birth. Just like the physical world, corruption or poisons within the egg or womb can kill, sicken, weaken, or deform what is being formed within that egg. And the anti excuse me, and the corrupt anti Tor mindset, the poisonous anti Torah mindset of Christianity, does indeed spiritually weaken and deform those who are being nurtured by its poisons. Of course, The eggshell, that is the protective covering, is essential for the health of that which is inside it. Without the shell, there is no egg. The same situation exists with the written Torah, the protective shell, and the oral Torah, the inner meaning. That inside, that inside stuff, the inner, the stuff inside the shell, depends completely upon its protective shell to provide its basic structure during the embryonic maturing process. The same goes for Torah. The written Torah, the protective shell, provides the basic structure for what's inside of it to mature and ultimately be born. The oral Torah is dependent upon the written Torah for its structure. And the written Torah is dependent upon the Oral Torah to provide definition, clarification, and deeper inner meaning. Let me say that again. The Oral Torah is dependent upon the Written Torah for its structure, and the Written Torah is dependent upon the Oral Torah to provide definition, clarification, and deeper inner meaning. If that which is inside a bird's egg is corrupt or wrong, that which is birthed will not be a bird. Likewise, if the deeper meaning of Torah is corrupted by error and false teaching, the spiritual birth will not be based upon God's truth and will be heretical in various ways. Now let's jump on into premise five, and this is the last premise. And then afterwards we will have a conclusion, probably in the next part. Premise 5. Christians are not correct in thinking that the New Testament condemns oral Torah. I have already presented evidence to support that Yeshua the Messiah supported and even used oral Torah in his ministry. He is not alone, since his followers followed his example, and there is far more evidence that I, that I could have presented to prove this. However, since Christianity actually follows an incorrect interpretation of the Apostle Paul, more so than it does uh, was Messiah, a fact I prove in a separate discussion, let us talk of what Christianity defines as the alleged anti-Torah mindset of the Apostle Paul. Let's talk about that for a moment. I discussed this in greater detail in a separate article, from which the following material was taken. And the article that, I, that I'm referring to, is uh, that I just mentioned? Is the article in which I asked the question, Does Christianity truly follow Christ? The answer of which is, No, it does not. And if there's one thing that I wish Christians could hear, it's that material. If there's one series of audios, if there's one uh, article on the website that I could give a Christian and I would hope they would pay attention to, it's that. Christianity does not teach to follow Christ. It does not teach to follow Messiah. In fact, it teaches against following Messiah. And I prove it, and it is very easy to prove. It's proven in that discussion. All right. Among the apostle Paul's supposed anti-Torah mindset was a limited level of difference with regard to the halakha that it, which are the leg, the true legalistic laws produced by rabbis. Now I'm talking here about drabanan. Take a note. The decrees that rabbis produce. This doesn't come from the Bible. This comes from the rabbis. He along with Yeshua and and others in the New Testament definitely had issue to a finite extent with the legalism That is found within rabbinic halakha. And no wonder. My friend, if you were to review the halakha of the Jewish sages, you will find numerous examples of things that seem rather extreme, and at times they're ridiculous and profoundly elitist. So, whereas the Apostle Paul was apparently against some of the halachic teachings of his day. There is no evidence, I found, that suggests he was really against anything else other than his opinions regarding the very few new items found within the New Testament, most notably of which, of course, is the identification of Messiah. The Apostle Paul's opposition was very limited. His opposition to to the Pharisees from which he came was very limited. Again, though, it, was, it doesn't seem that way because... He was against their rabbinic decrees. He was against their authoritarian mindset, which is now far, far worse. He was against the way they added to Torah and negated from Torah. The the Torah itself says directly, "You, you are not to add to or subtract from the Torah of God. Yet rabbinic Judaism, Akiva Judaism, has made that a fundamental activity Since its creation in the 2nd century, actually the late 1st century, they have added hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things, but they're all rabbinic. They're all drabanans, takanot and gezerot and minhog. So, Paul's opposition was actually very limited. And the common practice among Christians of expanding upon his opposition to include additional Torah elements is wrong. Therefore to extrapolate Paul's limited opposition to a scant few specific aspects of Torah so that he is portrayed as opposing all of Torah is grossly incorrect and frankly slander of the apostle Paul. There is no evidence at all that Paul's evidence or excuse me that Paul's opposition included the entire Torah or even a notable percentage of it. From what we have to study when one considers all of the Torah the Apostle Paul's differences are shown to be minimal. Now, here is a fact few Christians know and that Christian leaders hope they never discover. Most Christians do not realize that it was and is common for there to be differences of opinion between rabbis. They even joke about it. They talk about if you have two Jews, you have four different opinions. I mean, that's like a standard joke. It's common for there to be differences of opinions between rabbis. Sometimes those differences are quite severe and represent completely opposite views or quite different views. There are instances recorded in Jewish history and literature of harsh rebukes being hurled back and forth between rabbis rebukes at times as strong as those found within the New Testament. So why are the Apostle Paul's limited disagreements used by Christians to allegedly prove Paul was anti-Torah even though disagreement is so common within Judaism? There are many disagreements regarding Torah within Judaic thought, and yet in every case those disagreeing are or were united in their reverence for Torah itself. In no cases were they anti-Torah as unlearned Christians foolishly assume was the case with the Apostle Paul. They simply disagreed on various specific elements of the Torah. The history of Judaism proves this to be so time and time again. For instance, in the case of Rabbi Moshe or ram call, as he is often known, Judaic leaders for, basically forbade him from publishing some of his material and forced him to destroy it. Although since the name of God was in it, they actually forced him to bury it somewhere and nobody knows where, since destruction of anything that includes the sacred name of the eternal creator is forbidden from being destroyed. Nevertheless, the intent was for it to be permanently permanently removed from ever being seen. Rabbi Moshe Kamazaro was fairly harshly persecuted during his day, and yet now he is one of the most revered and widely wet, or excuse me, widely read of any rabbi. Ramkal the studies reading of the material of Ramkal that which he did produce is very widespread. Even outside of Judaism it's widespread. His case is not an isolated one. Balsham Tov, Vilna Gaon or the Gaon of Vilna, Rambam, and other highly revered rabbis of history were fiercely opposed at times. There have been extreme disagreements among rabbis in various Jewish groups throughout the history of Judaism, some of which verged on violence. Therefore, if you consider that even within Judaic writings, even within the writings of Judaism, we find numerous differences of opinion among the sages, then the disagreements between Yeshua and the apostles with some of the religious leaders of their day becomes nothing more than typical opinion variation. It is proven to be a normal and often seen occurrence. How often do you hear anti paulist or anti-Torah Christians mention that? My guess is you rarely hear it, since if they do mention it, it would destroy the bulk of their arguments regarding the Apostle Paul, or at least it would definitely put them in jeopardy. It is also often misrepresented by rabbis within Judaism, since they do not wish for Jews to be made aware of how Jewish the New Testament actually is. Now, The New Testament. In essence, what is the New Testament? The New Testament is basically a set of writings composed of Masar, Agadah, wisdom literature, that is basic theoretical Kabbalah, Hashkafa, and even some Halakha. The New Testament is thoroughly, thoroughly Jewish and thoroughly pro-Torah. It demonstrates a lot of similarities to other Oral Torah material. I have a large library of Judaic material, and I have listened listened to or watched many gigabytes of lectures and teachings from various rabbis. And I study Judaism extensively. Therefore, I am not I'm not making this up, people. It is a fact that anyone who devotes themselves to enough study will discover, but Christians are usually too lazy to undertake such a study. And yes, the Apostle Paul's alleged writings include the above Torah elements. The Torah elements of Musar, Agadah, theoretical Kabbalah, Hashkafah, and some Halakha. They, the Apostle Paul's epistles have that material. His, his writings are very Judaic. Virtually everything he says can be found worded slightly differently, scattered within Judaism's literature, thus proving he is not the anti-Torah pig that so many accuse him to be. Anti-Paulists and most Christians are simply ignorant of what Torah really is and too lazy to find out. They are also sinning, since by misrepresenting the Apostle Paul, as do Christians and deceitful Judaic countermissionaries, missionaries or by harshly, by harshly attacking the Apostle Paul, as do anti-Paulists and deceitful Judaic countermissionaries, missionaries they commit one of the worst of all sins. Lashon Hara, evil talk or evil-speak. Lashon Hara is an extremely damaging and wicked transgression. Yet Christians, anti-Paulist, and openly deceitful Jewish-based counter-missionaries continually practice Lashon Hara as they misrepresent and slander the Apostle Paul and the New Testament by claiming that the Apostle Paul was anti-Torah and Judaic-based counter-missionaries also claim the New Testament is anti-Torah, which it isn't. It is anti-Rabbinic oral Torah. It's anti-Durbanan. It's It's anti-Takanot. But they don't point that out. When they say it's anti-Torah, what they're talking about, the New Testament is not in favor and does not support rabbinic decrees. But since Judaism calls that Torah and equates it, and at times even elevates it above the actual Torah of the Almighty God, They say that the New Testament is anti-Torah. It's not. It's anti-Rabbinic authoritarianism. It's anti-adding to and subtracting from the Torah. It's anti-Rabbinic dictates. It's anti durabanan anti takanot anti-Gezerot. It's not anti-Torah. The reason few people see this, particularly Christians, is because very few Christians or anti-Paulists who suffer from the same ignorance of Paul's intent as do most Christians, have don't have any idea what torah is they they do not really know and they do not realize that virtually everything found in the new testament is also found and expanded upon greatly within jewish material now again with the with the exception of the mountain of dorbonis Dur- the mountain of rabbinic authorized dictates and decrees they're not found in the new testament Okay. Yet, all the previously identified ingredients, Musar, Agadah, Kabbalah, and some halakha, are legitimate components of the Torah, or instructions, or teachings of the Eternal Creator. Anti-Torah Christianity poisons the minds of Christians so much that Christians usually will not even consider that the New Testament is actually pro-Torah in all respects. The same poison affects anti-Paulists since they are usually ex-Christians. A perfect example is Kabbalah. Few Christians dare to even consider that it could be useful even though the New Testament is dripping with basic theoretical Kabbalah and Massar. They know nothing about it, yet they generally harshly condemn it. And that's actually a common thing among Christians. They condemn things they don't know anything about, most notably almost anything having to do with Torah. They are simply ignorant. If they reject Kabbalah, Massar, etc., then they need to burn their New Testament because that is largely what it includes and that is also what comprises most of the Apostle Paul's teachings. Christians could discover the Torah-centric core of the New Testament and Paul's letters, but their bias and the poison of the church keeps them distanced from trying to sincerely learn Torah. The anti-Torah foundations of Christianity result in a complete upheaval of what the New Testament actually teaches. It is a terribly sad situation. And of course, Jewish-based counter-missionaries are either ignorant of Torah themselves or bear false witness constantly regarding the New Testament's thoroughly Jewish foundations, thoroughly pro-Torah foundations. anti-Paulist are also counter-missionaries, even though they refuse to admit it, and they also bear false witness against the Apostle Paul, a witness based in gross ignorance of Torah and ego. Now, at this point, I'm going to pause, and we will conclude our discussion of oral Torah, proof of its legitimacy and necessity, in the next part, part 11. But let's pause here. I could push through and probably complete this in an hour or maybe slightly over an hour, but I don't want to extend it as I did the previous part, Part 9. So let's pause here with Part 10, and we'll pick up in Part 11, where I'll be discussing how ignorance of the Apostle Paul's rabbinic method leads to Christian anti-Torah mindset. It leads, it feeds that. Christians are ignorant of how Paul uses the rabbinic method, as does Yeshua, actually. And that causes Christians to, or at least it supports their anti-Torah mindset. But we'll pick that up in the, next, in, in the next discussion, which will be Part 11. And I thank you for listening, and please continue on to the final conclusion of our discussion of Oral Torah, Proof of its Legitimacy and Necessity. And thank you for listening. And goodbye.